Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. A little less than two years ago, I started preaching through the Gospel of John, and we finished it up last weekend. Two years. Now, you heard other sermons from other pastors during that time as well. You've heard Old Testament texts. You've heard wisdom texts. But I have primarily preached through John almost exclusively, I think. I finished it last week, as I said. But this week, I have one more sermon for you in the Gospel of John. And my sermon is on the Gospel of John. All of it. Every single chapter. Chapter 1 through 21. Now, you might have asked yourself at some point in time, why did God arrange for there to be four Gospels in the Bible, four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? You know, if he had only inspired one Gospel to be written down, then perhaps it would have eliminated those pesky critics that we have that tell us there are discrepancies between the Gospels. But the reason is, is that we have four Gospels so that we'll have four witnesses. We have multiple witnesses. It's as if we have a three-dimensional, maybe we should say four-dimensional view of the Lord Jesus through those four Gospels. Each one of them is slightly different than the other, but the Gospel of John is even more different than the other three Gospels. John stands out by itself. If your Bible has Jesus' words in red letters, the Gospel of John is filled with red ink. Jesus speaks in long, extended sermons and explanations in the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is broken up into two major sections. It's 21 chapters. But the first major section runs from chapters 1 through 10, and then that, that has often been called the Book of Signs. The Book of Signs because John organizes his narrative around the miracles of Jesus, followed by long discussions with the Jews who happened to bear witness to those signs or those miracles. Each of those signs teach us something more about Jesus. They teach us that he's powerful certainly, but they teach us more. They teach us about his identity. They teach us who Jesus is. And the discussions with the Jews that followed the signs further reveal Jesus' identity and his purpose. So those first 10 chapters are perhaps could be called the, the book of signs, but the second 11 chapters Chapters 11 through 21 have often been called the book of glory or the book of passion. The book of signs and then the book of glory or passion. Because those chapters focus on Jesus' return to his Father in glory through the passion and humiliation of his crucifixion. Another way to think of the whole book of John is first in those first 10 chapters, we have Jesus came down from heaven to reveal his Father. And second, Jesus is returning to heaven to open the way to his Father. He came down to reveal his Father. And in 11 through 21, he is returning to heaven to open the way to his Father. John's gospel is unique when compared to those other three Gospels. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. They have lots of overlapping material in them. But John's Gospel is different. John's Gospel was written last of all the four Gospels, in fact, long after many of those, those three were written. And it was probably as many as 50 to 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion, written by the Apostle John while he was on the island of Patmos in exile. That was his punishment. One Bible scholar describes John's gospel as providing supplemental material about Jesus, supplemental to those synoptic gospels. But John wrote his gospel not just to fill in the gaps in the other gospels. He had his own viewpoint 
his own witness to the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. His gospel fits with the other three gospels, but it teaches us many, many unique lessons about who Jesus is and what he came into the world for. We're going to be covering chapters 1 through 21, and my custom is typically to read my text, but I will not be doing that this afternoon. I will read one text, though, to get us started. One text. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. Uh, if, you, if you need a Bible, um, we could have one of the ushers bring you a Bible. You can raise your hand, and we'd like to let one of those Bibles be a gift to you. If you don't have one of your own, you can just raise your hand. Okay, we have one over here. Need one over here. We'd love for you to have a Bible. Great. John chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing to ponder that you have made yourself known to us through Jesus, your Son. You sent him into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world. We praise you for the salvation that we know by believing in him and trusting in him. Lord, we pray that as we survey this entire gospel, that you would strengthen our faith in him, those of us who have faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give the gift of faith to those who don't. In Christ's name, amen. The message of the Gospel of John is believe in the risen Son of God to have eternal life. It's that simple. Believe in the risen Son of God to have eternal life. Now, the way I'm going to exposit this whole gospel is I'm going to share with you 10 themes that are prominent in the gospel of John. 10 themes. Now, that's more points than most of my sermons have, you'll recall if you've been here before. So, I'll go faster with each one of these, and I'm not going to read them out to you beforehand. So, I'll try to repeat them carefully as we walk through if you want to take notes and remember them. The first theme that we see in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God the Father. Jesus is the Son of God the Father. More than any other Gospel, 
in John's gospel, we learn about the relationship between Jesus the Son and God his Father. Even the first two verses dramatically describe how the Son is related to the Father, and it uses different words for the Son and the Father. It uses word and God. But listen to those verses again. They're so very, very important. Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Son, of course, is the Word in these verses, and He's both distinct from the Father. The Son is not the same as the Father, and the Father is not the same as the Son. But the Word, the Son, is also called God. The Word was God, it says. And then in the first chapter, as we read farther, one of the disciples named Nathanael says of Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, I have some doubts that Nathanael actually knew what he was saying. Did he understand the depth of the truth that he uttered? And he uttered truth. I don't think so, but I think he would find out as he walked with Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 19, we learn that the Father loves the Son. We learn that the Son does nothing apart from the Father. The Son, it says, has life in Himself, just as the Father has life in Himself. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, it goes on to say. Verses 21 and 23 in that chapter 5 read, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. If we don't honor Jesus, we don't honor God. Throughout his gospel, John records Jesus speaking about his relationship with his Father. They are so close, so tightly connected to one another in love and power and purpose in the world that in chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one which the Jews then declare to be blasphemy and worthy of death, they say he's making himself equal with God, and they're right. One of the final interactions between the disciple Thomas and Jesus after his resurrection tells the story of Thomas's doubting that Christ had truly been resurrected from the grave. But when Jesus appears to him in a locked room, and shows him his pierced hands and his pierced side, Thomas declares about Jesus, my Lord and my God. Thomas has finally recognized that Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The divinity of Jesus the Son alongside God the Father is something that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions. Our Muslim friends may say they respect and love Jesus, but we declare that we worship Jesus. Almost every cult goes wrong concerning the divinity of Jesus. That's where they depart from true Christianity. If you get into a conversation with someone who's in a cult, like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and you begin discussing Christian theology with their theology, you'll come to an impasse on the topic of Jesus because we differ there. In fact, that creed that um, Chalcedonian Creed that we read together. Now, that was quite a mouthful, wasn't it? <laughs> lots of detailed, long sentences, lots of commas. <laughs> Just about everything in the Chalcedonian Creed is written to refute errors about Jesus. And if we had time, we could 
we could go through a whole class, uh, a number of sermons explaining how each phrase in the, Chal- the, the Chalcedonian Creed um, teaches us something about Jesus that early heresies in the life of the church, and still to this day, I might add, in fact, there's really no new heresies about Jesus, how they diverged from the true teaching of Scripture. To be a true Christian, one must believe, like Thomas, that Jesus is God and worship Him as fully God. The divinity of Jesus also ensures that we know what God is like, doesn't it? The God who, the Scripture says, dwells in unapproachable light, it says that in 1 Timothy, has made Himself known in Jesus. Jesus shares all the same attributes as the Father, the same subsistence, the same essence as the Father. So much so that when Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, what did Jesus say? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, you you don't need to see anyone else other than me to see the Father. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. In Jesus, God has come near to us, of course. We, We celebrate this around the time of Christmas particularly. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God come to us. John, of all the four gospel authors, gives us the fullest picture of Jesus, the Son of God, the Father. Number two, the second theme that John drives home in his gospel is that the world is hostile to God. Jesus is the Son of God, the Father, that's first. Second, the world is hostile to God. The ESV translation of the gospel of John uses the word world 61 times throughout the gospel. Now, there are only four of the 21 chapters where the word world is not used. When John speaks of the world, he's referring to all people who are opposed to God, the world in rebellion against God. The world is described as being filled with darkness. You heard that in those first 18 verses in chapter 1, while Jesus is described as being light. And the world, as Jesus speaks about it in John's gospel, is not just a small group of people who are actively and observably hostile to God. He's speaking about everyone who's not either trusting in the Old Testament promises of God by faith or in Jesus himself as God's Son sent into the world. The Jews would never have thought of themselves as hostile to God or enemies of the Lord. They were His people, His chosen people. But Jesus counts them as being a part of the world and hostile toward God by telling them, surprisingly, that their father isn't Abraham, but is the devil. Their father is the devil. That's what Jesus told them. John 8 Verses 43 through 45 say this. Jesus is speaking. Why do you not understand what I say? Well, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus describes a world where there are only two kinds of people. That's all. People whose father is God through faith in Christ and people whose father is Satan and are in rebellion against God. Now, this is a hard teaching. This goes against much of our intuitions in the world. You're thinking to yourself, well, I have colleagues at work They're good and nice people. And yet Jesus says there's only those two kinds of people. 
There is no third category of people. No one is neutral toward God. And the rest of Scripture agrees with this. What's important for you and I to understand is that if you, are, if you trust in Christ, if you're trusting in Him for the forgiveness of your sin, you have been born of God. You are no longer of the world, Jesus would say. You are of heaven. John 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Contrary to popular opinion, all people are not children of God, according to the Bible. They're all created by God, but they're not children of God. But we who trust in Christ were born into this world as a part of the world as John describes it. That's right. Originally, we all had our father as Satan. We were born with a sinful nature. Our father was the devil. And because of that, we were all bound for hell, every single one of us. None of us were born as a child of God. It's only given as a right. We grew up under the condemnation and judgment of God before we turned to Him in faith. Even the religious, observant Jew who became the Apostle Paul says of himself before meeting Christ in Ephesians 2 verse 3, he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, we had our father as Satan. Now, if you're a Christian, you come to gather here every week to celebrate together, to sing songs, to pray prayers of thanksgiving and praise, just like Bryce led us in earlier in this service, acknowledging that our father was once Satan, but now is the loving father of the Lord Jesus. We were once part of the world. We were once walking in darkness. We were enemies of God. But Christ loved us even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses. What an amazing thing that Christ has saved us. Parents, one important thing to remember is that your precious children are a part of the world, hostile to God until they trust in Christ. Their father is Satan until they are born again as children of the Father in heaven. This past week, I sat in a New Testament theology class, and the professor, one of the foremost New Testament theologians, says about children, they're little savages, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, he was laughing. He loves his children. We love our children, too. Do you see how important it is that you teach them then that disobedience has consequences? They won't just slide into the kingdom of God. Do you see how crucial it is that you share the gospel with them and teach them that they must trust in Jesus in order to be saved from their sin? And all of that, of course, we do in the context of a loving home. We love them like Christ has loved us. And that's a part of sharing the gospel with them as well. But it's so very, very important for us to share the gospel with children. If you're not a Christian, this might seem crazy to you, this idea that there's only two kinds of people in the world, Christians, people who have God as their father and people who have Satan as their father. I mean, you are at church after all, though, right? You're thinking to yourself, well, I'm here, Pastor Brian. But until you recognize that you have sin, coming to church will be of no use to you. It doesn't work like that. And your sin condemns you before God. And you can do nothing to get your sins erased or deleted. You can do nothing on your own, that is. Until you realize that you cannot erase your sins, you will not be able to become a child of God. If you can't acknowledge that you have sin, Christ will be of no benefit to you. 
everything that Christ offers comes after receiving his free offer of the forgiveness of sins. It's all secondary to that. Do you believe what Jesus says about you in the Gospel of John? The world is hostile to God. That was the second point. The third point is that Jesus offers us eternal life. Jesus offers us eternal life. That message is communicated over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of John by Jesus. Jesus says that he offers us eternal life. John 3.15, whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, may have eternal life. 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 6.40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John 10.27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And we could go on. He refers to himself as the resurrection and the life in chapter eleven twenty-five, He refers to himself as the way and the truth and the life in chapter 14, verse 6. He uses creative metaphors to convey his gift of eternal life when he says that he's the bread of life. And he says that he offers up a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he says in chapter 10 that he gives abundant life. And you can't get this eternal life that Jesus offers secondhand. It comes directly from Jesus. His offer is exclusive to him. You can't get it anywhere else than in him. He's so thoroughly the only single source for this eternal life that he opens his prayer to God with his disciples in John 17, 1 through 3, before he goes to the cross saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It's equivalent to knowing him. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. Being in a personal, conscious, intentional relationship of trust and faith equals having eternal life. Bible scholars would say that what Jesus means by eternal life is life in the age to come. The life that we'll get when God fulfills all his promises from the Bible. In other words, life in the new heavens and the new earth where there's no sin. But what's somewhat unique about John's gospel and his focus on Jesus' offer of eternal life is that it emphasizes that we can have that life now. We don't have to wait for it. When you trust in Jesus, you get it. And it will never go away. We can have the life of the age to come today by believing in Jesus. Do you realize that when we go chasing after idols in our lives, we're really all after the abundant life that Jesus offers? That's what we want. That's what we're hungering for. We're just looking for it in the wrong place. The wrong places, I should say. We're just looking for the abundance or fullness in other things. One of the classic idols that has many followers here in Dubai, as well as all around the world, I might add, is money. Money. I'd be surprised if there was a bigger idol in Dubai than money. The idol of money tries to promise us abundant life, doesn't it? If you have more, you have more life. Money wants to convince us 
That if we just have more, we'd be more satisfied, we'd be more contented, we'd be more secure. But money doesn't deliver eternal life or anything abundant that Jesus offers. Only Jesus can give eternal life. And you and I can have it now. Consider what you might be tempted to pursue in order to gain the abundant life that only Jesus offers. Jesus and only Jesus offers eternal life. Jesus offers us eternal life, but there's a fourth theme that we find in John's gospel, and that is the signs and witnesses to Jesus. The signs and witnesses to Jesus. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, John features seven signs or miracles. Maybe I didn't mention seven signs, but I'm mentioning it now. Seven signs and miracles that Jesus performs, and then the discussions that follow them. There's water to wine at the wedding, healing of an official's son, healing a paralytic in Jerusalem, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and finally raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, we could count his own resurrection as the greatest sign, of course. Maybe we'll call that number eight. And then in chapter 21, there is the miraculous catch of fish given to the five disciples who had gone fishing after Jesus' resurrection. But the Gospels indicate that the total number of signs and miracles that Jesus did was actually enormous, countless, so many miracles. In fact, John says at the end of his gospel in chapter 21, if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, it would perhaps fill up the books in all the libraries of the world or something to that effect. The phrase, the Pharisee, excuse me, Nicodemus, who visits Jesus at night in chapter 3, says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And John had only told us about Jesus changing the water into wine, but clearly we know he's been doing more signs than that. Still, John prefers not to overwhelm us with a laundry list of all the miracles that Jesus did, but to select these few signs as evidence that Jesus is from God, and Jesus is God. Jesus sometimes refers to his signs as works, and he describes them as being witnesses to himself, almost as if the signs are testifying in court on behalf of him. And so, signs bear witness to his identity. John the Baptist is also a witness. He bears witness, of course, when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God, John told the crowds. A third witness to Jesus' identity is the Father. In John 5, Jesus says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. A fourth witness in the scriptures in John is John 5.39, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Jesus told the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Eternal life isn't so much in the scriptures as in the one to whom the scriptures bear witness. Jesus. Jesus' own words about himself serve as a fifth witness. Jesus says to them in chapter 8, verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. And after Jesus' resurrection, he promised the Holy Spirit, whom he said he would send to serve as a witness of him. That's the sixth witness I can count. And then in the very, uh, in the 27th verse of chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be witnesses to him as well. That's a seventh witness I can count. 
or more if you count all of them. He says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that despite so few people in the world believing in Christ, Jesus has plentiful signs and witnesses that testify that he is indeed the Son of God and the Savior of the world. If you're challenged about why you believe in Christ, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your family even, you should remember that the evidence is there. You may not know it well. Perhaps you should equip yourself with some understanding of the vast evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. Maybe even reading a good book on apologetics, for example. Just to survey the evidence, which actually is all found in the Bible. There are good apologetic books out there, like Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, one of the oldest apologetic books. Or The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel is another one. Of course, none of these books even compare with simply knowing your Bible. In all my years of doing campus ministry here in the United Arab Emirates, I found that those books that I've listed and others were helpful to some extent, but just knowing my Bible was the best way to be equipped to answer questions when I had them asked to me. And I had a lot of them asked to me. Inviting someone into the Scripture to hear the witnesses, to read the witnesses' accounts themselves, is an invitation to lit- listen to those witnesses. If your friend or coworker asks a question that you don't know the answer to, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, tell them that you'll look into it and get back to them. And then ask a pastor or a wise person. Go online and look it up in some good sources, some good websites. The witnesses to Jesus are there so that not only would we believe, but that others after us would believe as well. The signs and the witnesses to Jesus. That's the fifth theme that we see in John's gospel. Excuse me, the fourth theme. The fifth theme we see is your belief is true or false. Your belief is true or false. The idea of belief in John is key to understanding his gospel. But there's a wrinkle in his presentation of belief that teaches us that people can have belief in a superficial way and yet not have belief that saves them. We see that first in chapter chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, after Jesus has driven out the money changers from the temple. Many of these people who were there in the temple at the time had seen the signs that he was doing, many of those signs that John doesn't describe for us. But it says at the end of that chapter 2, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, John is telling us that they believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them, we could say. (laughs) He doesn't believe in their belief. And this begins a pattern in John where John tells us that many believe, but then they demonstrate later on that they're not true believers. So, for example, in John chapter 8, It says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Wonderful. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? All those followers following Jesus. But then Jesus begins to speak further with that particular group. This is the same group that Jesus eventually tells them that Satan is their father. And at the end of the conversation, they pick up stones to kill him. The very ones whom it says believed in him. This is not exactly the kind of belief that we want to imitate, brothers and sisters. Their belief was superficial. It was not saving belief in him. 
John records Jesus using lots of other metaphors to fill out and explain what true belief is. He helps us understand belief when he talks about receiving Jesus, obeying Jesus, drinking the water that Jesus offers. He talks about hearing Jesus as being likened to believing in Jesus. He says only those who hear his voice. He talks about coming to Jesus, beholding Jesus. He even talks about eating Jesus' flesh and blood. The great North African theologian Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. If you believe in Jesus, you have eaten of his flesh and drank his blood. He talks about entering, abiding, going to him, knowing him, following him, being washed by him, loving him, keeping his word. And do you notice what's true about all of those metaphors? They are active. They are not just intellectual. Believing in Jesus is something far deeper than merely believing something to be true about Jesus. And so ask yourself, is my belief something more than an intellectual understanding that Jesus is the Son of God who's come into the world? Do those other verbs describe how you've responded to Jesus? Have you followed? Have you listened? Have you eaten his flesh and drank his blood, so to speak? Because belief can be true or false, genuine or fake, being a member of a local church is very, very important. And I say that because it is important, of course, for someone to stand up and testify that they have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus and that they are a Christian. But Jesus has given authority to local churches, groups of Christians who have covenanted together to be the ones to baptize people into the membership of the church. And when a church does that, they have assessed that person's profession of faith. Someone stands essentially and says, I believe in Jesus. I've repented of my sin and trusted in him. And the church says, tell us about it. What do you understand the gospel to be? How has your life changed since you followed him? And when there's a credible profession, then we baptize that person or bring them into membership if they've already been baptized as a believer. This gives every believer great confidence and assurance to have a church assess their profession of faith. It's one of the many reasons that joining a local church as a member is important. If you have been attending for a long time, I encourage you, come to one of our membership classes. We'll have another one of those midway through February. Tell us about your profession of faith. Tell us how you came to know him and how he's worked in your life. Let us bring you into the church, the accountability, the submission to the leadership here. Joining a local church gives us great confidence in our faith, that our faith is true and not false. Your belief could be true or false. That's number five. But a sixth theme in John is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. John's gospel is the gospel that perhaps most emphasizes the sovereignty of God, which is, of course, his complete providential control over everything. There's a, a number of different ways that God's sovereignty is demonstrated in John's gospel, but I want to just highlight one, and that is God's sovereignty in salvation. God's sovereignty in salvation, His total control over the salvation of anyone. In John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to visit Jesus, Jesus told him that he must be born again. He must be born of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom. And about the Spirit, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
human beings don't control the Spirit of God. The Spirit is God. And the Spirit goes where the Spirit wants to go. The Spirit saves who the Spirit wants to save. We see it as well in other passages. There's too many to count, but in chapter 6, this is what Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He goes on to say, so the Jews, what well, it says rather, so the Jews grumbled about him because he was saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they says, said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. God, the Father, must draw people to Jesus in order for them to be saved. John 10, that great chapter where Jesus says he is the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. When you become Jesus's, you cannot be lost. When you've trusted in him, you are secure in his hand because of his sovereignty in salvation. You know, our church mentions God's sovereignty in salvation in our statement of faith. In that statement, it says about God's sovereignty in salvation that it excludes Boasting promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of His free mercy. It is the foundation of Christian assurance. Believing and trusting in God's sovereignty and salvation gives us great assurance, brothers and sisters. It assures us that we cannot be lost from Christ's hand. We cannot be lost from the Father's hand. It teaches us to be humble because our salvation is 100% due to God. It teaches us to love because Christ first loved us while we were His enemies. We had made no good decisions, no decisions of faith before He came and regenerated our hearts and gave us an inclination to trust in Him when we heard the gospel. It encourages us to pray, like it says there. Why? Because God is the one who works. If God is sovereign and we can go to the throne and ask Him for anything... In Jesus' name, what a privilege prayer is. He'll answer us. John's gospel teaches us, perhaps more than any other gospel, that God is sovereign. That's theme number six. Theme number seven is that Jesus sends his spirit to us. Jesus sends his spirit to us. Perhaps, again, more than any other gospel, John teaches us about the Holy Spirit. We learn about the Holy Spirit particularly in the upper room discourse or that conversation that Jesus had with his disciples that's between chapter 13 and 17 in John's gospel. There we learn that the Holy Spirit is our counselor. He teaches us. He instructs us. He helps us know what to do when we don't know what to do. Jesus told his apostles that when they're persecuted, when they're dragged before the authorities and their life is on the line, what should they say? He says, don't worry about it. The Spirit will tell you what to say. That's the kind of counseling the Spirit does for us and more. The Spirit is called our comforter. The Spirit comforts us in our weaknesses 
comforts us in our losses and in our suffering. In Romans chapter 8, the Spirit, it, Paul tells us, prays for us when we don't even know how to pray. The Spirit is also our advocate. That's what we learn in those chapters 13 through 17. The Spirit is like our lawyer. The Spirit is going to bat for us before the Father. We learn as well that the Spirit abides with us and in us in chapter 14. We learn as well that He teaches us all things about Jesus. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and He will guide us into all truth. Now, all those things that the Holy Spirit does, Jesus was telling specifically His apostles that the Holy Spirit would do for them. But as Christians and followers of the apostles and the same Jesus that they followed, derivatively, secondarily, we have these promises as well. The Spirit is all these things for us. Of course, there's so many other ways that Scripture teaches us that the Spirit blesses us. The Spirit seals us for the day of redemption, it says in the book of Ephesians. The Spirit we see in the book of Acts emboldens the apostles, gives them strength to stand up and testify to Jesus. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we know that the Spirit produces fruits in us, peace, love, joy, patience, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, fruits like that, because that's what Jesus is like. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Jesus can promise all of these things to us because He is here with us. He said, I will be with you always. And that promise is proved true because He gave us His Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit is with you if you've trusted in Christ. You don't have to wait for any kind of second blessing. The moment that you repented of your sin... And look to Him in faith. The Spirit came in to your life and began to dwell with you. Praise God for the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That's theme number seven. Theme number eight is that Jesus was lifted up and glorified. Jesus was lifted up and glorified. Throughout the gospel, Jesus tells His apostles and the crowds as well that he will be lifted up. In John chapter 3, excuse me, 3, yes, he says that he, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus, of course, is referring to that episode in the book of Numbers where there were venomous snakes that were plaguing the people of Israel, and God told Moses, to lift up a bronze snake on a pole and have everyone look to the snake in faith and they would be healed. It was foreshadowing the death of Christ on the cross, of course. John chapter 8, 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he says in John 12, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Of course, Jesus is echoing what Isaiah, the prophet, said in chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner tells us that John wants us to see Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension as all one lifting up of Jesus. So lifting Him up on the cross and also being lifted up to the heavens in a glorified state is His lifting up. It's His glory and His victory. This is the heart of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Jesus being lifted up. All that first part of the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 10, were about Jesus' identity. Chapters 12 through 21 are about His destiny, 
His destiny is to be lifted up, to be glorified on the cross and in the ascension. Brothers and sisters, if you long for glory, we must walk the path of Jesus. We must walk the path of the cross and following him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself. We must take up our cross and follow Jesus. That is the route to glory. The theme of being lifted up and glorified is so strong in those last chapters of John. And we would do well to remember it. That's the eighth point and theme in John. The ninth point is that we abide in God's love. I'll focus just on two verses. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, or it says rather, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is speaking not just about washing the disciples' feet, which was just about to happen, but he was speaking as well about being lifted up on the cross and returning to the Father, opening the way to the Father. He was showing his love in doing that. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We abide in Jesus' love when we walk in his commandments. If you have repented and trusted in Jesus, his love for you does not rise or fall. It doesn't wax or wane. It's constant, and it's at its maximum all the time. And it has been that way even before you turned to Him in faith. It was only when you turned to Him in faith that you recognized and began to realize and comprehend His great love for you. You cannot change it, brothers and sisters. We abide in His love if we continue to trust in Him. You can stray from His love, of course. Jesus says, if you disobey me, you stray from His love. And our, as our, our uh, statement of faith says, our graces will be impaired. In other words, we'll experience hardship and pain and suffering in our life when we disobey Christ. But that doesn't diminish His love for us, brothers and sisters. It doesn't. We abide in God's love through Christ. Point number 10, Jesus sends us into the world. You know, one thing that's different about John's gospel is that in all the other gospels, we see Jesus training the disciples early on in the gospel, sending them out the 12, sending out the 72, teaching them that they would be fishers of men. But there's nothing like that in those early chapters of John. Instead, John saves the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples to the very end. In chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's John's great commission for the apostles. When Jesus sends us into the world, he also sends us with authority. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Of course, this is not authority that we ourselves have to forgive the sins of people, but we have the message of forgiveness in Christ and therefore wield that authority, so to speak, in its proclamation. We go into the world in the midst of a hostile world. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus sends in us into the world to bear witness. As I mentioned earlier, we bear witness about Christ and the gospel. 
And lastly, of course, in that great chapter 21, Jesus sends not only Peter but us as well into the world to feed my sheep, to build others up in Christ. Jesus sends us into the world as well. John's gospel has the signs and the passion. And his message is believe in the risen Son of God to have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, return to the gospel of John over and over again. You will be enriched and your followership of Jesus will be strengthened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gospel of John, his witness to us. We pray, Lord, that we too, like him, would be witnesses in the world, particularly here in Dubai, and particularly as a church corporately. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's sing our last song, Grace Greater Than All My Sin. Stand with me and let's sing.